0: This week, a lecture about Ukraine, Russia, and the United States. Catholic University professor Michael Kimmich teaches a class on the history behind the war in Ukraine.
1: Ukraine is one of these countries, uh, if you would think of the world as a set of Jenga blocks, Ukraine is one of those countries where if you pull it out, it's very likely that the whole tower uh, comes tumbling down. It's connected to many different places. Uh, It has a great deal to do uh, with the world economy.
0: Professor Kimmage also talks about the competing U.S., Russian, and Ukrainian interests from the Cold War through the 21st century that led to the ongoing conflict.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.:
1: Okay, welcome everybody, uh, our audience in the classroom and uh, our audience beyond, uh, to a class on the war in Ukraine titled "The History of the Present," uh, in which we're trying to go back into the past to do our very best to understand events that are happening before our eyes uh, in the present tense. Uh, and today's class is going to be an overview of the war uh, with our typical back and forth between past and present. And I'm going to try to explain, it's not a class in mathematics in the least, but a rather simple formula that's there on the, on the blackboard for those who can see it. And the formula is A is not equal to B plus C. Uh, and I'll explain in just a moment what that rather mysterious mathematical formula in practice means. Uh, a is a variable that stands for Russian aspirations uh, with its military and foreign policy. That's one side of the equation. B is the foreign policy and military aspirations of Ukraine. And C are the military and foreign affairs aspirations uh, of the United States. B and C have gone along. Pretty well for the last six months, and you've witnessed a very close partnership between Ukraine and the United States. So, in that sense, B plus C adds up to something significant. What it does not add up to is A, and there has been a very significant clash between the aspirations of the United States and Ukraine on the one hand and the aspirations of Russia on the other. So, that's what I will try to explain in short form in today's class for the next 40, 45 minutes or so, uh, and then we'll see if there are questions. Uh, before we draw today's class to a close. Let me start, before going into A, B, and C, with some words about the war itself that began on the 24th uh, of February. It would be deeply inaccurate to say that the war in Ukraine, as we've come to refer to it, uh, is uh, unique to our times, that it's the first major war since 1945, or even the first major European conflict since 1945. If you look back over the history of the last 60, 70 years, uh, you will see nothing that quite amounts to a Second World War, but you will see one major conflict after another. Just thinking in American terms, you have the war in Korea from 1950 to 1954, you have the war in Vietnam from the late 1950s until 1974, 1975, Uh, you have the war in Iraq that began in the spring of 2003, the war in Afghanistan that began not too long after the September 11th attacks in 2001. Uh, If you look at the history of Asia over the last 40, 50 years, you will see many conflicts, and I think anybody who would look at the history of the Middle East over the last 40, 50 years would see many, many conflicts uh, as well. Multiple wars, civil wars, upheavals, etc. You have a war in the southeast of Europe in the 1990s uh, in the Balkans. You have a Russian invasion of the country of Georgia in the South Caucasus in 2008. And indeed, what we have witnessed over the last six months has in fact been the second chapter of the war in Ukraine, which begins in 2008. So we cannot say that in 2022, uh, in this ominous year that we've been living through, we've entered an entirely new or different era. There have been wars uh, in many places, in Yemen recently, uh, Ethiopia, uh, conflicts in Sri Lanka and other places. And Ukraine is really one among many international conflicts that are occurring at the present moment. But it is, I would argue, and I say this by way of introduction, uh, a quite dramatic departure from the recent past, both in Europe, in ways that I'll try to explain in a moment, but also globally. And I would argue, perhaps with a little bit of exaggeration, not intentional, but uh, as, as, as part of what I'm saying that the events of February 2022, the beginning of the war in Ukraine, are on par with the events of the summer of 1914 uh, or the events of the fall of 1939, which is to say it's on par with the beginning of the First World War or the Second World War or late 1940s, the beginning of the Cold War, which doesn't have such a precise moment of origin but is a 40-year conflict that was uh, very, very consequential Uh, And significant, and I think that we are facing something of similar size, scope, and stature with the current war uh, in Ukraine. So let me say a few words about why this war matters as much as it does for Europe, and then a few words for why the war matters as much as it does uh, globally, and then we can move into our mathematical equation uh, of A not equaling B plus C. Europe has not seen a war of this kind truly, Uh, Since 1945, we have an engagement between uh, the largest military in Europe, that's the Russian military, and the Ukrainian military, which is not the same size as the Russian military. The two countries are not comparable in terms of uh, economic heft and population. Ukraine, a little bit less than 40 million. Russia, around 140 million people. Uh, And the Russian economy is bigger than the Ukrainian economy but the Ukrainian military is a very, very significant one as well. If you would subtract the Russian economy from the equation, you would see that Ukraine has one of Europe's biggest uh, and, in fact, most battle-tested uh, armies uh, in, uh, in all of Europe. So it is a confrontation between two major militaries, not quite on par with each other on paper, uh, but two large-scale militaries. It is not, as we might have expected 10 or 15 years ago, a war that has been, been taking place primarily in cyberspace. It's not a war of machines and computers so much as it is a war uh, of soldiers in the way that the, uh, the Peloponnesian War was a war of soldiers uh, or the conquest of the Roman Empire uh, were wars of soldiers. It is a very traditional war uh, in that regard. Uh, not all countries are equal in terms of geography. Uh, all countries are equal in the scheme of things, but they're not equal all of them in terms of geography, and so it matters very much where a war takes place. If the United States fights a war in Grenada, as it did in the 1980s, that matters for Grenada, it matters for the United States, it may not matter for the world. Ukraine is a very different kind of thing uh, from uh, the small country uh, of Grenada. Ukraine occupies a very, very important piece of global real estate. It is to the north of the Black Sea, uh, and the Black Sea unites... Uh, Turkey with Europe, uh, Turkey with Russia, uh, Ukraine uh, with Turkey—it's a major major transit point uh, and of great strategic significance. Ukraine has several countries that it borders to the west in the European Union. This would be Hungary, Slovakia, uh, and Poland, uh, as well as uh, Romania. So that's four countries within the European Union. Ukraine has Belarus to its northern border, which is an independent country, but very very closely tied. Uh, With Russia and Ukraine has a huge, huge land border uh, with uh, with Russia. So Ukraine is one of these countries. uh, If you would think of the world as a set of Jenga blocks, Ukraine is one of those countries where, if you pull it out, it's very likely that the whole tower uh, comes tumbling down. It's connected to many different places. Uh, It has a great deal to do uh, with the world economy. If you think of the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative that begins in China. As its destination uh europe and other places it runs uh through the country of ukraine if you think back to the first and second world wars although there wasn't an independent country known as ukraine in those two wars the territory of contemporary ukraine is integral to both of those wars many many battles in the first world war uh that are fought on the on the territory of today's ukraine and that if anything is even more true uh, of the second world war Ukraine was instrumental to the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was Ukraine's vote, the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic as a part of the Soviet Union, it was Ukraine's vote in the fall of 1991 that toppled the Soviet Union. Uh, Ukraine has perhaps been a little bit less significant after 1991 in terms of the history of conflict, that is until 2013-2014, but what revolves around Ukraine is simply very, very important in that sense also we can fold into the story of just the importance of the geography the fact that Russia is one of the co-combatants in the world Russia too is one of the countries that touches upon many other countries with part of Russia in Asia, part of Russia in Central Asia part of Russia in Europe and now because this too is an area of contestation uh, an important presence uh, in the Arctic so Russia is in many ways at the center uh, of the world and Russia is one of the world's two major nuclear powers So any conflict that involves Russia involves all of us, you could say, involves humanity because of the nuclear uh, dimension. So that raises the stature of the war in Ukraine, uh, I would say, uh, to a very high level. Let's also understand the stakes of this war. There are times when countries skirmish with one another. that they have a conflict over a piece of territory, over an issue, and they are able to Contain that skirmish within certain borders and boundaries. Those can be terrible affairs, that can be terrible episodes, uh, but uh, it's possible to have what you could describe as a limited war. Maybe that's what Russia and Ukraine have had since 2008, but it's not what Ukraine and Russia have at the present moment. This is a no holds barred existential war for both countries. If Putin loses this war, I'm safe, I feel safe making this prediction. If Putin loses this war, his presidency will be over. It is not uh, impossible that his entire government could fall uh, if the war uh, is lost. There is a precedent for this, in, 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 in and in a way there may be two precedents for this in Russian history. One of them is uh, one that would I would imagine press quite considerably on Putin's imagination, uh, Putin being a student of history, among other things, uh, and this is the war that Russia fought against Japan in 1905. Settled uh, the peace treaty settled in New Hampshire uh, by Teddy Roosevelt uh, in the summer of 1905, uh, and Russia lost this war to Japan. That began the long progression of Nicholas II, last Tsar of the Russian Empire, toward uh, revolution uh, and toward the loss of power, which he experienced in 1917, more immediately because Russia in 1917 was in the process of losing the First World War. But Tsar Nicholas II lost two wars, you could say, uh, the Russo-Japanese War and the First World War, and then he lost his government, and then after that he lost his life. And you could also point to Mikhail Gorbachev, who died uh, yesterday, whose obituaries are now being written. He lost the war in Afghanistan. The Soviet Union lost the war of Afghanistan in the late 1980s, and that was a part of his own loss of power. Eventually, loss of the war in Afghanistan, 1987 the Soviet Union cracks up in 1991. Not because of these wars alone, but there is a relationship. Putin is therefore acutely aware that if he fails in Ukraine, and he can fail in Ukraine, there's no guarantee of victory by any means uh, for the Russian military. However superior it may be with this or that armament or this or that uh, issue in theory or on paper, it's a war he can certainly lose. If he does, uh, it will not be a trivial loss. It will not be a loss that he can probably survive politically Uh, it will be game over uh, for Vladimir Putin. So in that sense, from his point of view, whatever winning may mean, it's a war he has to win. The stakes, if anything, are higher for Ukraine. We have seen from the nature of the Russian occupation of various territories in Ukraine, and the reporting is never perfectly clear, it's sometimes murky, uh, but I think that these are safe generalizations to make, uh, that the Russian army has committed numerous atrocities, that there have been forced programs of Russification of the population. They've been forced to take on uh, different kinds of classes and to use uh, a different language at times. Uh, because of the Russian occupation, uh, there are reports of, of of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian children who have been deported uh, to uh, deported to Russia. And I think it's no secret. Uh, that if Putin had the ability to assassinate or in some way to eliminate the Ukrainian government, I think that's probably what he was trying to do in the first few days of the war, if that was the case, uh, if that was possible for him, this is something that he would do. So Ukraine faces the prospect, if it would lose this war, uh, of a very difficult uh, occupation, uh, the loss of freedom in really every uh, respect. And I think in that sense you can say for Ukraine as well that this is an existential conflict. Well, if you agree with those two assumptions, those two statements, that this is an existential conflict for Russia and for Ukraine simultaneously, what it means is that these countries are going to give it everything. They are going to push as hard as they can push to stave off to defeat uh, or to achieve victory. So this is not going to be some kind of limited small-scale skirmish where the countries just dispute a little bit like uh, uh, India and Pakistan have disputed territory in Kashmir for the last couple of decades but they're not going to use nuclear weapons against each other because of this dispute. It's a dispute that they're able to contain. Not so uh, in Ukraine, in the case of Ukraine and Russia. And therefore, it's the final point I'll make before getting into a review of Russian, Ukrainian, and U.S. aspirations at the present moment or over the last year or so, uh, that uh, it's very possible that this conflict, this war, could spread to include other countries. In other words, more likely than... The possibility that Ukraine and Russia can contain this conflict is the possibility that the conflict will spread to include additional countries other than uh, Ukraine uh, or Russia. Already you have lots of countries, including the United States, that are involved in the conflict from a certain distance. It's an open question whether they can retain that distance. In that sense, and this is to be very melodramatic and hopefully not irresponsibly so, but in that sense the war in Ukraine runs the very, very real risk of becoming a world war. That is unfortunately the precedent with these kinds of wars in Europe because of the density of countries that are so closely connected and and, and related that they draw one another into these conflicts. And so we have two examples from the 20th century of what were at the beginning kind of smaller scale regional conflicts uh, that developed very quickly uh, into world war. So that's something to worry about and something to bear in mind in this case. All of what I'm trying to say Speculative and factual alike, all of what I'm trying to say is that the event that has happened before our eyes over the last six, seven months is one that is of immense significance. So, that by way of introduction. If we are to understand the immense significance of this event, what we need to understand are the motivations of the primary actors. And so, this is what I wish to turn our attention to uh, at the moment. What motivates the three major participants in this conflict. And the three major participants, A, B, and C, in, 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 in uh, mathematical form, are Russia, which started the war, so that's where we have to begin this story. The war is being fought on the territory of Ukraine, so that's of equal importance in terms of understanding the conflict. And one might walk down the streets of Washington, D.C. on a pleasant late summer, early fall day in October or rather August of 2022, and say that this country has nothing to do with a war in Europe. This is a country engaged uh, in its own business, getting ready for midterm elections, back-to-school sentiment and mood uh, in Washington, D.C. You know, sort of the city still sort of in the rhythms uh, of its late summer uh, vacation. That might all be the optics of Washington, D.C. at the present moment, but make no mistake, uh, Washington, D.C., or rather the United States, is uh, an unbelievably important participant in the war in Ukraine. It would not be unfolding as it is unfolding if the United States were not the kind of participant uh, that it is. Uh, So that's uh, as important as any other piece of the puzzle. Uh, And even though the war is quite distant, it's possible as an American to live without any awareness of a war in Ukraine. It's not forced upon us, in other words. Uh, Although it's very distant, uh, the United States is not distant from the war. So we need to understand the motivations of the United States uh, as well. What motivated Vladimir Putin to pull the trigger on the 24th of February, 2022? I think the first thing that we have to say in the spirit of being careful uh, and rigorous is that there is a great deal that we do not know. We don't have access to the inner sanctums of the Kremlin. We may never gain that access. We don't have, as historians would like to have, a good trail of documents that really lay out the thinking of Putin, the decision-making process the input of his advisors, the military planning, uh, et cetera. So there's a lot of the data that we might wish to have, a lot of the factual information that we might wish to have that we don't have. So put an asterisk by anything that is said by me or anybody else in terms of Putin's motivations, put an asterisk next to that uh, and have that asterisk indicate that what is being said is guesswork. And guesswork is different from factual analysis. So since we can't do a factual analysis in the way that we could of, say, Tsar Nicholas II's thinking at the time of the First World War, or Kaiser Wilhelm's thinking, or Woodrow Wilson's, or anybody else's at that time, we don't have that advantage. We'll have to just do the best we can by guessing. So in that spirit, I am going to guess as methodically and uh, carefully as I can about the ro- motivations Russia has had for initiating uh, the brutal war it has been prosecuting in Ukraine over the last six and a half months. One of the keys to understanding Russian foreign policy is an ambiguous relationship within Russian foreign policy between offense and defense. It is very, very difficult to disentangle these two things in Russian foreign policy, uh, and what to outside observers can look like pure offense may, from the inside, from the Kremlin's perspective, be perceived uh, as defense. And what is perceived as defense in the Kremlin can be acted upon in an offensive manner. I'll try to make this as clear as I can, uh, this point about Russian foreign policy, but I want to begin with this somewhat abstract generalization uh, about Russian foreign policy, which goes deep back uh, into Russian history. One of the constants of Russian foreign policy going back not decades but centuries is an equation of security and territory. Security and territory. It is a you know, commonly made observation and a very legitimate and important one, a commonly made observation that Russia is not Great Britain or Japan or the United States for that matter. It is not a country that is bounded by oceans. Is not Switzerland. It's not bounded by mountains. There are no natural... Borders uh, to the Russian landmass, and historically, Russia is one of those countries uh, that has always had enemies. Sometimes the enemies have been to the east, uh, and sometimes the enemies have been uh, to the west. They less typically have come from the south, and there's not much of a north to come from given how far north uh, Russia already is. So, historically, the enemies of Russia have come from the east and the west. Uh, and a response, a kind of foreign policy response to that situation has been to def- build the defense of Russia. You can't really build a Great Wall of China or a Hadrian's Wall around Russia. The country is too big. But the defensive strategy has been to add territory, to make Russia as territorially large as possible. And you could say the success of that project is to be measured by the circumstance that the largest country in the world uh, uh, is, is Russia. Second largest country in the world is, I believe, uh, Canada, but that's, you know, a lot of, you know, fairly northern real estate uh, as well. But, uh, you know, Russia is by far, I think, 10 or 11 time zones, uh, is by far the world's largest uh, country. Now, how is it that you build territory? How is it that you expand your territory as a country? It's obviously empire building and conquest. So... In a sense, this is again this sort of dilemma or this paradox perhaps that offense and defense are intertwined in Russian foreign policy. If you think that you make yourself more secure by having more territory, (laughs) you defend yourself by becoming bigger, the only way that you can do that is by going on the offense to acquire that territory. So you can study, you know, if we had a computer uh, graph, we could sort of do it visually, the growth of the Russian Empire into Siberia in the 18th and 19th centuries, very very far uh, to the east, such that Russia has a border, surprisingly, with uh, North Korea, not just with China and Mongolia, but it goes so far as to be a bordering state uh, to to North Korea. And then, at the height of the Russian Empire, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, you have portions of uh, of Poland that are part of the empire, the Baltic republics, parts of Finland, uh, and you know, sort of very far down. Uh, to the south, such that the the Russian Empire was sort of there uh, on the edge of uh, of the southeast of europe or of 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 the Balkans, so this became a massive empire uh, that developed territorially and again i 'm speaking in the past tense i 'll bring this sort of forward in, uh, in just a moment. Uh, but again, the paradox of Russian history or Russian foreign policy has been that in acquiring these territories through conquest new enemies have been created. So you defend yourself from the old enemies by acquiring territory, but in the acquisition of these new territories, you also create new enemies for yourself. So it's never been a stable situation. It's never been a a, a situation of great, you know, sort of continuous security for Russia. It's almost been a, a, a case or a situation of continuous insecurity. And very often it has been, I don't mean peripheral in the sense of denigrating anybody, but it has been the peripheral populations or the peripheral territories of the Russian Empire that have brought it down uh, at various times. And so it was in part the difficulty of defending all of its peripheries in the First World War that was a dilemma for uh, Russia and certainly in the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was the peripheral uh, parts of the empire, Ukraine uh, and the Baltic Republics, that dissolved the Soviet Union uh, in the late 1980s or in, uh, in 1991. So You know, that sort of equation of becoming more secure through territorial acquisition uh, has not led to stability. Uh, At best, from a Russian perspective, it's led to a kind of managed instability. So bear this point in mind when I try to hone in now on Vladimir Putin's reasons for invading Ukraine on the 24th uh, of February. I think that what Putin judged in, the, in February and probably the military planning begins at least a year, if not two years, before February 2022, I think what he judged is that from his point of view, Ukraine was drifting out of the Russian orbit. We in this class will go much further in the discussion and description of Ukrainian politics and why there was a revolution there in 2013 and what that meant for Ukraine. We'll have to put that to the side for a moment just to concentrate on Russian decision-making And the war. I think Putin's judgment was that Ukraine was drifting out of the Russian orbit, that it was drifting in a westerly direction, that it was forming an ever closer military relationship with NATO, not as a member, but just as a kind of partner, and that it was forming an ever closer military relationship with the United States. I think Putin's assumption here is that there was a trend at work circa circa 2022 or 2021 when he made the decision to begin planning for the war, that there was a trend or a pattern at work that was very chronological in nature. That in 2014, Ukraine had initiated a closer relationship with the West. By 2022, that relationship was far advanced. And I think he was projecting into the future to 2032 or 2042 and saying, if nothing is done then that relationship will be very advanced indeed. And what Russia will have is a non-friendly or possibly hostile country on its more than 1,000-mile border uh, with uh, Ukraine. It will be a kind of platform or area for military development, uh, and that area will be used by the United States, its allies and partners, for their purposes. Uh, And in that sense, uh, Russia has, or Putin, Putin sort of put it this way, either a real vulnerability in real time in 2022. It's a little bit hard for me to imagine because nobody was poised to invade uh, Russia in 2022, far from it. Uh, so it doesn't seem quite a threat in real time. Uh, but I think for Putin, it was a potential threat. There's this potential threat. There's this potential source of, of, of danger that's there for us uh, on our border. And that danger is a foreign presence or if Putin had to put a face on it, it's the presence of... U.S.-influenced parties uh, and, uh, and, uh, and groups. Now, we might disagree with this assessment. We might feel that this is incorrect, that this is paranoid, uh, that this is a misreading uh, of Ukraine. It's a misreading of American politics. All of that is very possible. It's certainly highly debatable, uh, all of these points and conclusions. But if we are to understand Putin's decision-making, we have to try to enter into his mind. So let's say that that is the problem, as he understands it. That's the best that I can do. I think there are other ways of configuring it, but that's the best I can understand in terms of his deepest motivation uh, for thinking about war uh, in Ukraine. If his assessment is that Ukraine is a potential vulnerability for Russia, the second part of the equation that we have to understand for Putin is why would he choose to respond with military force, right? He could put the squeeze on Ukraine economically. He could go to the UN and try to come up with some argument as to why this is not a good situation for Russia. He could, conceivably, it's theoretically possible, he could sit down with Biden and say, let's work out something different in terms of your position and posture toward uh, Ukraine. Uh, He could... uh, uh, attempt to do something with Europeans and say that the U.S. has got it wrong. The U.S. is too forward-leaning militarily when it comes to Ukraine. So let's you and I, you Europeans and I, work on something better, some other kind of arrangement. Uh, these are all theoretical possibilities. There's a lot of other things that Putin could have done other than to invade. So in other words, he could have perceived a vulnerability, but the invasion uh, was his particular answer to that vulnerability. Well, why? I think it goes back to this issue of, uh, of territory. Uh, If you equate territory with security, and in a sense, if you equate going on offense as the best form of defense, I think you can see how Putin is solving the problem that he put before himself. It's not, again, uh, for most American observers or non-Russian observers, a lot of this doesn't make much sense. Uh, And it will just be the fever dreams of Putin or a kind of eternal Russian imperialism uh, or just the evil of, 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 of the Kremlin, that's your explanation, uh, but that, to me, is not a very, uh, you know, sort of serious way of trying to analyze these issues. I think there has to be more, uh, there has to, be more to it. And so I think uh, that the defensive problem that Putin identified or associated with Ukraine, the Russian vulnerability, in other words, is one that he believed he had to solve in an offensive manner. Uh, and so territorial acquisition. And in the course of the war, this is both 2014 and 2022 for Russia, Russia now controls between 20 and 25% of Ukrainian territory. Ukraine is a country the size of Texas, so it's not a small country. Uh, there's quite a significant territorial component to what's happened, and I'm going to guess that Russia will do everything it can to hold on to this territory or perhaps to acquire, uh, to acquire more. So that is what Putin is winning in the course of the war. He may not win political control of Ukraine. He would love to have that. He may not win that, but I would not underestimate the importance of the territory as such. Old-fashioned thinking about foreign policy, that territory equals security, you bet. Uh, and I think it probably is the way that Putin looks uh, at, uh, at the world. It's a very interesting question now, sort of the last thing I'll say about the Russian side of the, of the story. It's a very interesting question now as to whether Putin truly believes he's winning the war. Very important to try to figure out. Uh, a lot of us at the beginning, sort of observers and analysts of Putin, said he looked pale, he looked sickly, uh, you know, he had some kind of deathly disease, uh, he was in the grips of some kind of neurotic, uh, maniacal mood, um, he seems to have snapped out of it if that was the case at the beginning of the war. In other words, um, there was the sense that Putin was sort of not up to the task psychologically uh, at the beginning, there was an outside perception, uh, and now many people are saying that Putin believes that he is winning, uh, that he's winning the war. Maybe that's based on misinformation. Maybe that's based on what people describe as war optimism, possibly. If he believes he's winning, it's the final thing that I'll say on this account, if he believes that it's winning, he may be measuring his successes in territorial terms. In other words, not has every battle gone, not what is President Zelensky saying in Kiev, not how many weapons is the U.S. providing Ukraine, how much territory lies under our control, because, you know, in this kind of circular uh, uh, reasoning, uh, the greater the territory that we have around us, the more secure that we are uh, at, uh, at home. Okay, so let's draw a line of that and say that that is, uh, that is variable, uh, variable A. Let's switch our gaze and perception uh, to the country that has been the victim uh, of these two wars in 2008 uh, and rather 2014 and, and, and 2022. Let's turn our attention now uh, to the country uh, of Ukraine. Uh, and let us try to understand uh, what I'm going to describe as the Ukrainian predicament, uh, because I think that this predicament helps us to understand the nature of Ukrainian foreign policy, the nature of its motivations uh, in the present tense. Let me just say a few words about Ukraine uh, in the 1990s. So Ukraine had been a piece of the Soviet Union. We could go back into earlier history, and we will, uh, and there's much more to it than just the Soviet story. But circa 1991, it had been a piece of the Soviet Union since the end of the Second World War. Parts of Ukraine had been a part of the Soviet Union from earlier times. Uh, in 1991, Ukraine acquires its independence, its own parliament, uh, its own capital city, its own currency, its own flag, You know, no less independent or sovereign uh, than the United States or Canada or Britain or other longstanding and very familiar countries. Ukraine is not politically connected to Russia in a formal sense. It's its own country, uh, and that's what it wished to be in 1991 uh, and in the 1990s. But the story that we can tell about the three Baltic republics, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, that were also a part of the Soviet Union since 1945, is a very different story from the story of Ukraine in the 1990s. And so by discussing just a little bit this divergence between these four former Soviet uh, pieces of the Soviet Union... Uh, I think we can get uh, to a a, a sharp and good understanding uh, of Ukraine's situation uh, in the 1990s. Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, they're all quite small countries population-wise, were on the track in the 1990s. They only got there in the first decade of the 21st century, but they were on the track to join the European Union and to join the NATO alliance. These were uh, countries that very much perceived themselves uh, as European Uh, that had deep ties through diaspora populations to Western Europe uh, and the United States. Uh, And they also seemed, as smaller countries, very manageable as countries that could be brought into the European Union uh, and NATO. They made a lot of the internal reforms, legal and economic reforms, that were necessary to join these two Western institutions of the European Union uh, and NATO. They were sort of objects of desire joining these Western clubs, uh, and at a certain point they entered into, into these uh, entered into these institutions. That gave these three countries a great feeling of connectedness uh, and security, not least because when you enter NATO, as I'm sure all of you know, when you enter NATO, you get what is called the Article V commitment uh, that the United States or any other NATO member will come to the defense uh, if there is a threat uh to to if there is a threat to the security of one of these uh of one of these countries so the path of these three former soviet countries latvia lithuania and estonia was a path into the west if you can put it that way it was a path into these western institutions unambiguous clear populations were in favor of it they got into the club uh and uh i think with very very few reservations they've been very sort of happy and proud members of the club uh ever since i believe it's 2004 the so-called big bang of uh, of nato expansion when the three baltic republics enter into the nato uh, alliance so bear that in mind that's one possible post-soviet destiny but ukraine describes a very different post-soviet destiny a very different uh, state of affairs ukraine does not join the European Union or join the NATO alliance in the 1990s. And in fact, if you go into polling data with the population, there were quite significant uh, divisions uh, within the population that not more than 50% of the population wanted to join uh, NATO. And the European Union was often, uh, was often similar, that it wasn't necessarily the, uh, the, chosen, uh, the chosen path. It was one of several possible paths. And there was also on the side of the EU and NATO a great reservation about incorporating Ukraine. Large population, big border with Russia, many Russian speakers there. It just felt different from the Baltic republics and it felt like more of a, uh, a more of a challenge. The predicament of Ukraine then is how to be autonomous, safe, secure, independent, everything that a country wishes to be, its own agent, its own decision maker in the world. Uh, when you are not a part of one of these larger clubs, When your economy is relatively small and when you live in a dangerous neighborhood. People have started to make the comparison over the last year, for the course of the last year, it's a very illuminating one between Israel and Ukraine. Likewise, Israel, uh, you know, it's not the world's biggest economy, certainly not the world's biggest population, uh, and it lives in a tough neighborhood. So it's had to figure out how to do that. One of the Israeli answers has been to really invest a lot in military affairs. And of course, Israel has a close partnership with the, uh, with the United States. But Ukraine has had a much more difficult time of it or a much more difficult challenge has faced Ukraine. And this predicament was sustainable as long as Russia kept a certain amount of distance. And the catch-22 of Ukrainian foreign policy goes as follows. If Ukraine was deferential toward Russia, if it made certain concessions, if it didn't rock the boat, then things would basically be fine. And you can sort of study the different Ukrainian politicians after 1991, the different presidents of Ukraine, and they all kind of manage this a bit differently. But if, you were, if they were deferential toward Moscow, if they were deferential toward Russia, what they could have was peace, security, and freedom. But there was a nagging philosophical question that came with that, which is that do you have peace, security, and freedom if you're being deferential? Is that truly autonomy? If you have to kind of acknowledge that you have a bigger brother uh, who's going to push you around or knock you around if you go off course or do something that that bigger brother doesn't like. Are you truly being free? Are you truly uh, independent? And so Ukraine has had this great challenge uh, of dealing with a neighbor that uh, has all kinds of strengths and all kinds of interests in Ukraine uh, and is expecting a certain kind uh, of deference. Without going into details about why this is the case, Let me simply state that it is the case that in 2013, the deference comes to an end. The Ukrainian deference comes to an end. Was this a good thing or a bad thing? That's for the Ukrainians to say we can sort of evaluate and discuss and debate this in an academic way. But the fact of the matter is the deference came to an end. And when the deference came to an end, Russia chose a policy of different kinds of aggression vis-a-vis Ukraine. It was definitely the bigger brother Uh, and it felt like it had a right to push around uh, Ukraine for the sake of its agendas and its aspirations uh, in the region. Remember, this is sort of trying to intertwine things a little bit. For Russia, offense and defense are intertwined, and so what happens in Ukraine is understood to be a part of the Russian national security uh, story. And so Russia feels that it has a stake or maybe something more than a stake uh, in Ukraine, and it is entitled to sort of push for the outcomes it wishes to have uh, in Ukraine. So the deference stops in 2013, and you get a gradual uptick in military pressure coming from Moscow. This first takes the form in ways that we're going to study in much greater detail. This takes the form of the annexation of Crimea, a part of Ukraine, in March of 2014. Then you have an outright war between Ukraine and Russia for about um, a year, roughly, February, March of 2014, till January, February of 20. 20- 15, and then you have a very uneasy, nervous stalemate after that uh, on, on, uh, from, from 2014 uh, forward. Let me just mention a final sort of detail in terms of the Ukrainian predicament. I don't think it's anything is resolved at the moment in terms of this uh, issue or this subject. I just want to describe it as clearly uh, as I can. The last seven, eight months have been some of the most complicated I don't mean difficult, that goes without saying, but have also been some of the most complicated in Ukrainian history for the following reason. Ukraine has done something that it was never able to do in the 1990s. It has got real military partners. Most importantly, the military partner of the United, partnership of the United States. That was not forthcoming a year ago. That is very much a fact of life at the present moment. Even Germany, which is a country that very much defined itself as a pacifist country after 1945, not a military power, didn't invest much money in defense, doesn't like military activity, really tries to keep a distance from that. Even Germany is sending its panzer tanks uh, and other forms of military hardware uh, to Ukraine. So even the countries that were self-declared pacifists before the war, seven, eight months ago, are now military partners Uh, of Ukraine. Norway, I heard the striking detail recently at the beginning of the war, gave its entire artillery to Ukraine. Can you imagine? Uh, Giving an entire branch of your military hardware uh, to another country, and Norway is only one of many countries that are now currently assisting uh, Ukraine. So the complexity is as follows. The complexity is that Ukraine now has bona fide military partners. It's not necessarily a part of NATO, but it's getting billions upon billions of military assistance from the U.S., Uh, And many other countries, and that's going to continue, I think, for quite uh, a while, perhaps even indefinitely. In effect, Ukraine has become a member of the club, but the price it's paying for this is astonishingly high in the sense that the war is not finished, it's not over, we don't know how it's going to go, and the war is being fought on the territory of Ukraine. Another cost or another way of humanizing the cost of the war for Ukraine is some 12 to 13 million refugees or internally displaced people. That's out of a country of a little bit less than 40 million, that would be like one-third of Americans. What would that number be? 70, 80 million people, one-third of Americans losing their homes, either within the U.S. or fleeing to Canada or Mexico uh, or to other countries. It's sort of unfathomable, I think, when you put it in those uh, those local terms. The cost to the Ukrainian economy has clearly been uh, immense. And even if, when you look at those New York Times and other maps of the war in Ukraine, you can kind of see that now it's only only uh, the southeast of the country that's uh, involved in the direct military activities, even if it looks like it's only like a fifth of the country that's actively engaged in the war, the war is being fought all over the country. The bombs are dropping on cities in the west. Uh, Every family, of course, uh, is affected, and we could go deeply into the economic details of the war, uh, which are uh, very, very uh, disturbing for the society and for the people uh, of Ukraine. And also, you could imagine, how is it to school the next generation of children when the country is so torn apart uh, by war? So in a certain sense, the war is robbing Ukraine uh, of its future. Not completely, of course, and there are many ways of triumphing over, over this kind of adversity. But to an extent, the war is robbing Ukraine uh, of its future, and that is the price that is being paid uh, for the war. And at the same time, the war is making it possible for Ukraine to resolve one of these outstanding problems of its independence, which is the problem of where do we stand? Where are our alliances? Where are our partners? Where are our friends? That question has become much clearer, and in a sense, it's much more favorable to Ukraine. Uh, But, of course, the clouds of war hang very heavily over the country, and we have no idea when those clouds are going to lift. So that is B. That is the predicament of Ukraine. Where to fit, where to fall, um, where to sort of organize itself in terms of its foreign policy, what relationships and alliances to build, uh, and the last six months have changed an enormous amount uh, in that regard. Well, we come now to the last part of the equation, the C part of the equation, uh, that is the United States. And let me you know, sort of begin by inverting things, by turning things inside out, and speculating as to why the U.S. is not indifferent about a war in Ukraine. Why is it that the... the, Let's let's imagine what it would look like for the U.S. to be indifferent to the war in Ukraine. Americans could easily argue that Ukraine is very far away. It is many thousands of miles uh, away from the United States. Americans could argue that the U.S. has almost no economic equities in Ukraine, and that is true. It is not a country that does much uh, to determine the course of the American economy. It neither provides many goods to the U.S., Uh, nor does it uh, buy many goods uh, from the U.S. You could sort of go back to the two Gulf Wars, 1991 and the Iraq War of 2003, and you can see that there was an economic component uh, to both of those wars, but not uh, in Ukraine. You could argue uh, from an American perspective that the U.S. has been through a lot militarily in the last 20, 30 years. Uh, It has waged two wars overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan, paid greatly uh, for those wars financially and in human costs, uh, and you know, a lot of Americans felt very frustrated with the outcomes uh, of those two wars. So why begin another overseas war if you have that bitter aftertaste uh, in your mouth? And that might be another reason for uh, American indifference uh, toward, uh, toward the war. And a final reason might be, thinking uh, sort of abstractly or perhaps uh, 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 coldly about this, that the war in Ukraine matters less to the United States than a decent, workable relationship with Russia for the simple reason that the United States and Russia are the world's two major nuclear powers. So what is the threat that we have from this region? It's not Russians taking XYZ cities in Ukraine. Uh, The threat that that Americans face is that the whole conflict will get out of control and could acquire a nuclear dimension, and then the U.S. might be somehow pulled into this, uh, this sort of nuclear catastrophe. So you could also say on that basis that the U.S. might preserve relations with Russia for the sake of its own security, uh, and in this scheme, sort of sacrifice Ukraine on the altar uh, of of, of American security. Those those are all, to me, imaginable arguments. It's very interesting to note that none of those arguments has done anything, gone anywhere, or even been a part of the Biden administration's thinking uh, about Ukraine or the war in Ukraine. So that might be the case for other administrations. It might be the case for presidential candidates in 2024. Uh, That's very possible. But for those who have the keys to the foreign policy kingdom, those who are making the decisions, uh, these arguments have not had any traction whatsoever. So the question we have to answer then, not the faux question of why Americans are not uh, indifferent to the war in Ukraine, the question that we have to answer is, why is there such a high level of commitment and concern? Uh, for a country that is far away, for which there are no real economic interests, uh, and that does involve, or supporting this country involves conflict with one of the world's major nuclear powers. So the US is, in many ways, putting itself on the line uh, in the war in Ukraine, and we have to figure out why this might be the case. So let me try to explain as best as I can. I've tried to do this with as much intellectual empathy as I can for the Kremlin and for the Ukrainian government. Let me try to explain the motivations of the United States and of the White House. We can have a broader conversation about American public opinion. Very, very important. That's a complicated conversation to have. Uh, but the decision-making power is there in the White House, so let's privilege that uh, for today's purposes and just focus on decision-making there. Why does, the, uh, why does the White House care as much as it does about this conflict? Why has it made the decisions that it's made both during the conflict and in the lead-up to the conflict? We need to go back a bit in time for this. So history of the present, we're speaking about the present, but we need to go back into history to think about this particular question to understand the answer uh, to this question. American foreign policy is formed, modern American, contemporary American foreign policy is formed in the memory of the two world wars. Prior to World War I, the U.S. had a very small federal government. It was really not that much in the foreign policy business. Yes, in the Western Hemisphere it was, Spanish-American War of 1898. It's sort of pulling the U.S. into the world. But still, in many ways, the U.S. was pursuing its own business prior to the First World War. It's the First World War, it's the Second World War that pulled the United States into the world, that made the United States a global power, that engaged the United States in the affairs of the world. It is a conclusion of the makers of American foreign policy after 1945 that the U.S. has to act very seriously, very you know, sort of uh, creatively to prevent a World War III, to prevent a Third World War. First World War was very costly for Europe, for the United States, for the world. Second World War was immeasurably costly. The U.S. paid a huge price, maybe not quite the price numerically of the Soviet Union, but it paid a huge price for the Second World War. And so the lodestar of American foreign policy, the driving impulse of American foreign policy is no World War III. We need to have something better. We need to have a different system in mind. We need to have a different state of affairs. Where do the first two world wars begin? They begin in Europe. They are European wars. What's the American interpretation as to why these wars begin? It's that you have um, too little democracy on the one hand uh, and too little deliberation, cooperation uh, on the other hand. It is necessary to build structures of cooperation and and deliberation. Uh, It's necessary to spread democracy for the sake of preventing those kinds of circumstances that created the First and Second World War. In the American reading of things, this is precisely what the United States does for Western Europe after 1945. So Western Europe is in ruins, it's in rubble. The French and the Germans had always been at war. The Germans and the British had always been at war. We really need to figure out something better for Western Europe. And this is, to be sure, one of the great success stories of American foreign policy. What do you get by 1950? You have a Marshall Plan that has helped Europe to get off of its feet, Western Europe get off of its feet economically. And by 1949, you have the NATO alliance uh, that, instead of uh, perceiving these different European countries as, as adversaries, they have become partners and friends, especially France and Germany. They're both members of NATO. So the adversity, in a sense, is gone, and the partnership has been, uh, has been built up. This partnership, this peace, which brings great prosperity to Western Europe, lasts until 1989 or 1991, when it doesn't come to an end, uh, but it sort of uh, uh, comes to a new stage. The Berlin Wall falls, the Soviet Union vanishes overnight, uh, and Europe is really dramatically at peace. And then the task of American foreign policy, once Western Europe has, in effect, been solved, we've solved Western Europe, I'm putting things a little bit crudely, we've solved Western Europe, now we have to solve Eastern Europe. So we've done the job in Western Europe, now we have to translate these terms, translate the nature of this success into Eastern Europe. And so there are a lot of success stories after 1991 in this regard. I've mentioned three of them, the three Baltic republics that joined the European Union and joined NATO. You have the expansion of the EU and the expansion of NATO to include for many former you know, sort of countries that were under Soviet, uh, that were under Soviet control. And a lot of the same benefits follow. The prosperity, the movement of populations... Uh, the ways in which old adversaries think of Germany and Poland for many hundreds of years have been adversaries in, in, uh, in Europe. Poland and Germany become equal members of the European Union and the NATO alliance. So in a sense, that recipe that had worked between France and Germany, it works between Poland uh, and Germany and other countries after 1991. The premise of the United States also, is a little bit more practical in a way This this point, the premise of the U.S. is the sacrosanct thing in Europe are the borders of these different European countries. It is absolutely crucial that countries be able to maintain their borders. And as a corollary of this, probably one of the most important points that you can consider in terms of understanding the American response to the war in Ukraine, the corollary to this is that a smaller country is not less important than a bigger country. And so the borders of a Latvia, right, a million and a half people, uh, if Germany wanted to waltz in, Uh, and rearrange the borders of Latvia? It certainly could, uh, in theory. But according to the American reading of Europe, the borders of Latvia are not less important than the borders of of Germany. And the borders of these small countries have to be preserved. Why? Well, it's nice for the small countries. That's part of the answer. But the more important part of the answer is that if you allow this to happen, you're going to just get the competition, the contest, the back and forth, the resentments, the grievances, the military settling of scores that's going to bring you back to a World War I or a World War II. You have to keep the structure intact. You have to keep the integrity of these borders, and you have to ensure that the small countries are no less secure than the big countries. This is the American recipe for peace, security, and prosperity in Europe. Well, let's you know bear all of that mind in terms of what's happened in the last year uh, in Ukraine. Let's think of the war in Ukraine as a contest between Russia and the United States to see which proposition is true. The Russian proposition is Ukraine is close to us; it's historically connected. We have a right to figure out in Ukraine and surrounding areas what works for us, and we have the military power to do so. If you can't stop us, you have to accept it. Not the perfect paraphrase, but it's something like the Russian proposition at the present moment. The American proposition or the U.S. proposition is that if we allow Ukraine to be rearranged, its borders to be rearranged, and if we allow Russia to reach its hand in and change the government of Ukraine and start to dominate it from the outside, in effect to make Ukraine a kind of colony of Russia's, what will have been set is the worst possible precedent for Europe. We will have gone back in the American reading of things to the 1890s, uh, or to the years immediately before the First World War, when all of this stuff was constantly being rearranged, divided up, uh, you know, sort of partitioned, repartitioned, colonized, recolonized, uh, et cetera. If we go back to that ugly past, the Ukraine war is not going to be the only European war. It's going to be the first of many uh, European wars. And for the U.S., I won't linger over this point. I'll just mention it for your consideration. There's a lot of uh, significance for Asia as well. Because if the rules in Europe are that might makes right and that borders don't matter and that little countries are insignificant, well, that is going to be something terrible for Taiwan because Taiwan is a country that's smaller than China, doesn't have the military heft of a China. Uh, And if China draws the conclusion from Ukraine that these kinds of wars are, it's now open season for these kinds of wars, then not only will we lose lose stability in Europe, but we will lose stability uh, in, uh, in Asia as well. So there is a way in which Ukraine matters for it being Ukraine. It's certainly the case that the White House cares about the citizens of Ukraine, doesn't want to see displaced people, doesn't want to see the bombing of civilian populations. There's definitely a moral uh, part to the American response, as there has been to the European response and to the response of many uh, who have supported Ukraine since the war began. But it does go beyond that for the United States to something larger. The whole U.S. vision of Europe is at stake in the war in Ukraine. And so if you accept that point of view, is it costly to send a billion dollars worth of missiles uh, to Ukraine on a monthly basis? Or I think the numbers are even higher than that uh, at the present moment, $3 billion, $4 billion, uh, per month. I think it's something like that in terms of U.S. military assistance. Those are big numbers. Is it costly to send that amount of military assistance to Ukraine? If what I've said a moment ago is true, that the future of Europe, the sort of peace and security of Europe is at stake, then it's not expensive at all in some respects it's very cheap when you consider uh, when you consider the alternative. So for the United States, the essential thing is not so much that Russia be defeated or that Russia lose. That, of course, is the preferred outcome uh, for the war in Ukraine. But the more essential thing for the U.S. is that the old system, the kind of old rules with these intact borders, the importance of small countries, uh, the kind of deliberative solution to problems rather than the military solution to problems in Europe, the more important thing is that that old system be kept ongoing and sort of up and running. That is the, uh, that is the crucial uh, American motivation. So interestingly, not that we would have perceived this in the campaign in 2020, Ukraine has risen to the top of the agenda uh, of the Biden administration. It may be in foreign policy. I think it will be the most important issue uh, for Biden's first term, if that's all, uh, if that's all that there is. Uh, and a relatively obscure part of Europe, which is what Ukraine was, uh, let's say, 10 years ago, has come to be the central terrain, the central battlefield uh, of the 21st century, at the very least for Moscow on the one side and for Washington, D.C. on the other. So, A, Russian aspirations to gain greater control and, in in its self-perception, greater security uh, through the domination of a certain amount of Ukrainian territory— That runs directly counter to a Ukrainian desire for sovereignty and independence, and Russia's aspirations run directly counter uh, to the vision that the United States has for Europe. And that's the way in which A does not equal B plus C, and I guess you could say that that not equal sign uh, is equivalent to the war that we see before us. So let me draw to a close on that uh, disturbing uh, note, and the floor is now yours for whatever questions you wish to ask. Please like the United States, England, Germany, some of those Baltic
0: states have um, contributed lots of weapons, ammunition to Ukraine. If Ukraine's supposed counteroffensive, like in the south, doesn't end up being successful as the fall goes on, I know it's kind of speculative, but would you see maybe a lower amount of weapons and ammunition being devoted, um, donated by certain countries like Norway, Sweden, England, Germany. Because right now, the U.S. is the main contributor. Right. It's
1: an excellent question. I think that um, uh, you know there's a lot to unpack uh, in uh, in that question. I think that as long as Ukraine is under duress, that the military assistance will keep flowing. And I think that um, uh, that is as important for European countries as it is. Uh, for the U.S., so I think even the failure of a counteroffensive—and we've seen the inklings of that uh, this week—even the failure of a counteroffensive would not change the fundamental nature uh, of the military support. I think what the failure of a counteroffensive would change, though, are the stated objectives, the kind of end game that are attached—that's attached, that's attached uh, to that support. And I think instead of the reclamation of territory, I mean, it's sort of officially U.S. policy, semi-officially U.S. policy that Ukraine's uh, uh, goal is to reclaim all the territory that was taken after the 24th of February. And so U.S. military assistance is going for that purpose, to kind of bring it back to the status quo before the 24th of February. I think if there would not be a successful counteroffensive, that would be given up. And the objective would be, well, there's going to be a line between Russia and Ukraine at a certain point. It will be kind of like North and South Korea. We want Ukraine to be as advantageously positioned, so we need it to be sort of as forward as possible. So the military assistance is still important, but it's more for that end than for, you know, sort of bringing the country back to where it was uh, prior to the, to the 2022 war. So it's very significant, but, but uh, the, the whole issue of a counteroffensive, but it's, it's not the whole game. Please.
0: You mentioned how Russia has used territory um, by offense as a way of defense. But I'm wondering how, through a historical lens, we can understand the present in the United States' approach to defend Ukraine by kind of using territory in a more ideological manner by having its allies uh, to preserve the status quo of
1: the world and avoid that World War III you mentioned. That's... that's, Uh, that 's a very very interesting question. I think that um, what it points up is something of a big structural difference between the united States and uh, and Russia. Uh, the United States, I think you know terrorism can change this perception, but it feels pretty territorially secure uh, and Of course, it matters a lot that the u s has good relations with Canada to the north and with Mexico uh, to the south and good relations in a different sense with the Atlantic Ocean uh, and the Pacific Ocean. so the likelihood that the u s would use territory to enhance the security is very, very low. Um, and in that sense, I think you're, you're absolutely right that the US tendency when it comes to its global outlook is to build up these large structures of alliances. NATO is one uh, example, and you use the term ideology. What the US feels comfortable with, although there are exceptions to be sure when it comes to the practice of American foreign policy, but the US feels comfortable, most comfortable with fellow democracies. So there's a very long tradition, going back really to the American Revolution, of supporting democracies for the sake of supporting American security. Uh, And, of course, if you look at Russian foreign policy, you'll just see a very, very different uh, rhythm to it. The Soviet Union definitely used ideas and ideology to sort of build influence and to enhance its power, but um, uh, that's not been the story in Russia after 1991. I think their territory, what you could sort of classically understand, is these very... um, in a sort of hard uh, national security issues, that's sort of driven everything and ideas and ideology have been, less, uh, have been less significant. So it's very helpful to try to understand the contrasting, you could put it this way, the contrasting security cultures of the United States and Russia because they play off of each other uh, in ways that matter a lot to this, to this war. Please. Uh, I'm either, I was going to ask, so the U.S. foreign policy has been very different throughout the years, obviously,
0: but specifically, it changed a lot in the Cold War since they were kind of playing dirty um, by using the CIA to then get them to train other people in said countries. Do you think the U.S.
1: would pull that maneuver again? And if so, you think that lead to another possibly like Cold War? So that's a that's a very very interesting question about. Um you know, sort of rough tactics, and um, uh, and as as you say, playing dirty. I mean, I would argue, uh, in a way, that the U.S. has always been uh, pretty comfortable with tough tactics. I mean, well before uh, the Cold War, certainly the conquest of Native American land is not uh, 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 you know sort of a matter of uh, of genteel uh, politeness. The Mexican American War was of eighteen forty eight was a war of conquest in which. You know, Texas, California, New Mexico, uh, Nevada were sort of taken from uh, Mexico by force. 1898, I've mentioned the Spanish-American War uh, that makes the United States for a time sort of formally uh, an empire, uh, and you know those were uh, brutal military campaigns uh, at, ta- at that time. So sort of brutality and toughness, I think, are not foreign or non-native to American foreign policy uh, by... Uh, by any means. Uh, I think that um, you're asking about a kind of revival of a Cold War. I think we're kind of there already uh, in many ways, at least in the European domain. I think we're, uh, we're there in the sense that this is a war that's being fought uh, on multiple planes, as the Cold War was. There's the battlefield dimension. There's an economic dimension. Uh, you were mentioning ideas uh, and ideology. The United States positions itself as a friend of, Euro- of Ukrainian democracy. Uh, and is very critical of Russia's authoritarianism and autocratic nature. That's certainly very reminiscent uh, of the Cold War and lots of Russian rhetoric uh, about the United States as hegemonic and aggressive and, uh, and, uh, and arrogant is very reminiscent of the Cold War uh, as well. So I think in many respects, we're sort of already there. The only distinguishing point I would make between now and then, between the Cold War and the present moment in terms of U.S.-Russian con- uh, conflict, is that it's not as global as it was then. Uh, And it sort of works differently. Uh, In a sense, during the Cold War, the Soviet Union and the U.S. were the world's two major powers, you know, sort of far and away. And so what they contested over in the Middle East, in Africa, Latin America, Asia, that uh, determined a great deal. I mean, now you have China, uh, you have India, you have Brazil, uh, you have many countries that are independent and important players. And you can't say that the U.S. and Russia, they're both less powerful than they were during the Cold War. So it's not quite the structuring uh, global conflict that the Cold War was, uh, but in Europe it feels a lot like a Cold War. Uh, and you know, to come full circle with your question, you're asking about brutality and toughness. Um, you know, in a way, that's what all wars evoke, but if it's a new Cold War, very likely there'll be a, a tough and brutal edge to it. The fact That all these various actors have very mutually exclusive goals and high-stake nature, is it even possible for an outcome besides the total victory to end the war? Like, is there any hope of a peaceful outcome, a diplomacy working in order to resolve the conflict? Well, this question is a is is, is a crucial question. It's a very very hard one. Uh, it's a very hard one to answer. But since we concluded today's lecture on with the White House with the Biden administration, let's think about it from there. Uh, from their angle of, uh, of vision. Uh, is there going to be a total triumph over Russia of a kind of World War II style absolute defeat? I don't think it's possible, not because Russia is incapable of failure, but because Russia is a nuclear power and you, know, you can't really defeat a nuclear power unless it defeats itself as the Soviet Union uh, did in 1991. So that's not really an option. The defeat of Russia as such is not an option. I think what the Biden administration hopes for is a combination of two things in Ukraine. This is at least the best-case scenario for the U.S., that there will be a, a, battlefield, a set of battlefield setbacks in Ukraine that will just make the whole thing very, very difficult uh, for Russia, and that will intertwine with a second dynamic, which will be a changed political atmosphere in Russia itself where the war becomes less popular. So this sort of happened in Afghanistan with Afghanistan in the 1980s for the Soviet Union. It fought the war. It didn't go well. The war actually became quite unpopular. 1987, uh, after invading in 1979, the Soviet Union uh, withdrew. So I think that that's the most optimistic, the sort of best-case scenario for the Biden administration. But I think the Biden administration recognizes that that's probably an unlikely outcome, and that there's going to be some messy finish to the war where neither the Ukrainian nor the Russian side gets everything that it wants, but it will be either some stalemated situation of a kind of endless, frozen conflict, uh, or it will be a very, very unsatisfying negotiated uh, settlement that could well result in other wars down the line. Uh, Not a very optimistic answer, I'm afraid, but it's the the best I can do. Please.
0: This question refers back to the podcast that we listened to on uh, Russia's Russia's plan for referenda. Um, Could you explain how this plan demonstrates that um, Russia doesn't want to negotiate
1: with Ukraine. Right. Well, it's a very good question. For those who haven't heard the podcast, this is a "We're on the Rocks" conversation about the state of the uh, state of the war between Ryan Evans and, and Michael Kaufman, two, uh, two experts, uh, and it was discussed the possibility of a of sort of referenda that would be held in occupied uh, territory in Ukraine, occupied by the Russian military. Uh, and these referenda would start to make these territories, at least in Russianized parts of, of Russia, administratively, you know, sort of Russian land, as, as Crimea has been uh, has been made, and this would be completely intolerable uh, to the Ukrainian government. So your question is spot on. Uh, if this does happen, I think that for the Ukrainian government to negotiate, it's that much more difficult, and the negotiations were not going well uh, beforehand. Uh, Does Russia show any signs at the present moment of wishing to negotiate? I certainly don't see them. Uh, You know, there's... um, The rhetoric is maximalist. The invasion is certainly uh, ongoing. And these kinds of measures, the referenda, uh, are deeply uh, provocative. Does that mean that negotiation is off the table forever? No. I mean, I think all wars reflect, um, including the Second World War, including the Cold War, including the First World War, all wars reflect the sort of simultaneous will to negotiate and the will to do battle. Uh, There's always a kind of balance there, uh, and there's very, very little negotiation at the present moment, but if something really does start to change on one of the two sides or on both of the sides, the negotiations will uh, return. Uh, The war serves certain needs for Russia, perceived needs, uh, and it's certainly throwing everything behind it. It's not a war that Ukraine can afford to lose, but just think of all the incentives. If you, if you can think beyond the Kremlin, think of all the incentives to stop the war, all the ways in which people would benefit from stopping the war. So that has to play a role uh, in the scheme of things and may work in the favor of some kind of negotiated settlement uh, down the road, but um, uh, prospects for negotiations in the short to medium term seem absolutely bleak. Please.
0: you elaborate further as to um why it was so easy for the Baltic states to join the EU and organizations like that, as opposed to Ukraine, and why it was so hard for them to basically assert their own uh, independence within you know, the freedom that was allotted to them after the fall of the Soviet Union?
1: Yeah, this is another, this is another excellent, uh, excellent question as to why, for some countries, it was easy to join the club, uh, and for other countries... Uh, it, was, uh, it was very hard. It's definitely the case, taking a step back from your question, that for the EU and for NATO, it's not as if they had a roadmap or a blueprint. They didn't expect the Berlin Wall to fall when it fell. They didn't expect the Soviet Union to collapse. Nobody did. That sort of created such good conditions for the EU and NATO, but it was unexpected. And so what you see after 1991, it's very typical of diplomacy and international affairs, is a lot of improvisation, <laughs> This country might apply, why not? It should apply, it's a good idea for it to apply. Part of the reason that Poland and Czechoslovakia had such good prospects for applying is not because these uh, countries had all the perfect merits to enter NATO uh, in the 1990s, but because they had very beloved leadership in the 1990s. Lech Walesa and Vaclav Havel were really popular in Washington. And when they came knocking on the door and said, please let us into NATO, they had a lot of clout uh, in Washington, D.C. So that could be a factor. You know, geography was certainly a factor. And it just kind of happened haphazardly, uh, in a sense. So part of the answer to your question is that it was a very anarchic process of how various countries entered in to the EU and NATO. It was not a top-down, very rationally planned uh, process. But why it was easier for the Baltic uh, republics, I think size, as I mentioned earlier, plays a big role in this. Lithuania is a little bit less than 3 million. Latvia, Estonia, each roughly a million and a half. I mean, that's just so much easier to manage. Uh, than a country of 40 million. Uh, Turkey is a NATO member. It's a very large country. It's a pain in the neck for Washington often, uh, but it is a NATO member. Uh, It's never been a member of the EU, I think, for a similar reason, that it's just a big country to bring in, uh, and the EU has never been, you know, sort of able to uh to manage that um you know i think that there are other answers when it comes to ukraine that officials would give you from the eu and from nato and one of the things that they would have pointed to of course before the current war is that you know sort of corruption rule of law was a problem in ukraine in a way that it was not in poland or the baltic republics hungary czechoslovakia rather czech Republic, slovakia other countries that did enter nato romania bulgaria uh, etc that they sort of worked that out better than ukraine did and ukraine was a problematic candidate Uh, in that regard. But I think probably the ultimate answer, and it's very frustrating to state from a Ukrainian point of view, but the ultimate answer is the proximity to Russia Uh, and that the Baltic republics, although on the map, they're not further from Russia than than Ukraine, is they felt in some ways further from Russia. Non-Slavic populations, predominantly not Orthodox Christian. Um, However you wish to sort of thematize these things, perhaps perceived as more European uh, than Ukraine was. But the sense that Ukraine was somehow tied to Russia... I think was very problematic for the Western Europeans and others who are contemplating membership in NATO in the EU. That, of course, looks very different in the hindsight of the last 12 months, but I think that that was an important part of the story in the 1990s and thereafter. Well, I would like to thank you for your wonderful questions and to thank this audience and our other audiences for their uh, attention over the past hour and 20 minutes. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. If you're interested in hearing more history, check out season two of the Presidential Recordings podcast. The second season focuses on taped conversations between President Richard Nixon on topics ranging from the Watergate scandal to his nominees for the Supreme Court. The Presidential Recordings podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.